You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. And welcome to How to Fail with me, author and broadcaster Elizabeth Day. This is the podcast where we flip the traditional interview format on its head, celebrating failure rather than success. Because what we learn from the former is often far more important than anything that comes from the latter. It's how we respond to failure that defines our character and helps us grow. Every episode, I ask a very special guest to discuss three failures and how they emerged on the other side to be the person we see today. Before we get into my interview with Paloma, I am so delighted to let you know that you can join us afterwards at Failing With Friends, my subscriber series, where we continue our conversation. This week, Paloma and I go through getting over an ex, risk-taking, and how your relationship with your family affects you. Also, how to train a dog. Not even kidding. And I would love to hear from you. If you'd like to get in touch, follow the link in the podcast notes. My guest today has had many jobs. She studied theatre directing and has variously had stints as a sales assistant at Agent Provocateur, a singer in a burlesque cabaret, a hip-hop dancer, a bartender, a life model and a magician's assistant. But she's best known as a singer and actor. In her music, her lyrics trawl the depths of heartache and her melodies blend elements of soul and gospel. It is an eclecticism that has its roots in her childhood. Her mother is English, her father Spanish, and her stepfather of Chinese heritage. She recalled later that she was raised to believe differences were something to be celebrated or curious about rather than demonised. She's released five critically acclaimed and platinum-selling albums since 2009, scored a number one hit single and a number one album, as well as scooping a Brit Award. On TV, she's been a judge on The Voice and an actor in movies including Centrinians and The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Now she returns with her sixth album, The Glorification of Sadness. Described as her most personal work to date, it details the breakdown of a 10-year relationship with the father of her two daughters. Quite often, we hear about women as victims in these situations, she said recently. I wanted it to be empowering. I wanted it to be invigorating for people to feel strong. She is, of course, Paloma Faith. Paloma, welcome to How to Fail. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here because I fail constantly. Well, you're wearing a T-shirt that says shit happens, which I'm very pleased about. And your album is called The Glorification of Sadness, which I think is a fantastic title. Thank you. Why did you call it that? Well. I, I called it the glorification of sadness because last year I had five funerals and one of the people who died was somebody who was, you know, quite close to me, a poet, and he'd written this poem which I read out at his funeral and 
And one of the lines in it really stuck with me. And it said, every artist's pain is for sale. And I think that I I had this like once reading it, it really kind of resonated with me. And I had this kind of hyper kind of awareness that I was turning probably what was, I would say, my biggest failure in my life into a commodity. Um, and even though it was sort of therapeutic and cathartic for me, it still is like becomes lucrative for whatever businessman sits behind the desk. And I had a, a meeting with my record company and I played probably the, the song that I feel saddest hearing called Divorce from the record. And the head of the label said, yeah, but how can we turn this into entertainment? And it just felt kind of like this a bit uncomfortable. Mm. So I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to call it. That's why. It's like, yeah, the commodification of tragedy. There's so much to unpack there. First of all, I want to say I'm so sorry that you had five funerals. <laughs> yeah. That's horrendous. It was an avalanche of sadness. Because you're in your 40s now, mm. as am I. And I do think there's something both powerful and terrifying about entering what is unglamorously called middle-aged <laughs> because you you start to realise that you might have less time left than you've already had. Did it make you think differently about how you wanted to live your life going through those periods of grief? Nothing impacted me quite as much as the breakup because death is so permanent, so there's not much you can really be doing about that. Whereas a breakup, you're both still alive and you've got, you know, there are times when we see each other and it really works and it's amazing and we think, or I think, what are we doing? And then there are times where you're reminded and you're like, oh, that's why. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think that's more thought-provoking to me than the permanence of death. Death's just sad because it's, you know, irretrievable. There's nothing, you can't go beyond it. Mm. Going back to your album... There's a single that has just been released called How to Leave a Man. And it's classic Paloma Faith in that it's very intelligent and it's also a real bop. <laughs> <laughs> and, there, and there's sort of deep melody to it as well. Like it's a very multi-layered thing that you do. How do you write a song? Like wh what's the process that you go through or does it change for every single song? It changes for every song because sometimes I'll just be like sent home with a load of chords, like a song on the record called Already Broken. And I just kind of wrote it while driving and I just was stopping the car voice noting stuff. And then other things like How You Leave a Man was a song that was sort of sent to me that was almost nearly finished and then it didn't quite resonate with me personally so I changed the lyrics so it's it's kind of always different because How You Leave a Man initially was written from like sort of a 20-something perspective and it really I was like no I'm kind of past that and I think with the video I added that layer where it pans around at the end and it's like all glamorous. And then it's you see that I've got two kids in the boots doing mm. that, which my ex was not best pleased about. He's like, why am I in the trunk? <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> I was like, because I can't leave you. Not because I've murdered you. It's because I can't leave you. Even if I wanted to, there's no separation because we've got these kids. So forever we're eternally bound. That one was about making it relevant to my position. D 
Do you ever worry, going back to that idea of commodification, about sharing too much of yourself or being so honest? I mean, I know it helps so many other people and I'm really glad that you do it and I think it's really courageous. But do you worry that sometimes your instinct is to overshare before you're ready or before your ex is ready? Does that ever I think so, but also I think that my idea of oversharing like so it's, there's certain things that I keep very close to me that I don't share but I remember once a journalist interviewed me and and it was a really clever observation they said she gives you the feeling that she's telling you everything when actually I'm worried she's told me nothing and I think that, that there's a bit of that like I I overshare by whose standards I don't know not mine mm. <laughs> yeah occasionally my mum gets on to me about it she's like you don't need to say that especially now I've been writing this book and she read the the second draft and she's like do we really need to know how many orgasms you had on that occasion <laughs> that's a bit tabloid and I'm like she's like you could just say it was an enjoyable experience and I'm like I don't mind about that there's other things that I mind about I guess everyone's got their own parameters of what they think is oversharing yeah and I also think there's something patriarchal wrapped up in that like the idea that if a woman is honest about her experiences, then it's oversharing and hysterical in some way. Yeah. Whereas if a man is honest about their experiences, it's sort of bold. Brave. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to talk about your book in a minute, but I know that a lot of listeners to this podcast come to How to Fail when they are feeling heartbroken. Mm. And it's partly because I have spoken a bit about my own past heartbreak and I do consider it a form of grief. I think it's, one, it's an incredibly hard thing to go through. And I wondered if you had any advice for anyone who is in the throes of that right now. It's really difficult, isn't it? Because everyone's circumstances are different. I've been through a lot of breakups now <laughs> and I do think that this album, I've purposely ordered the songs so that it actually sort of is chronological in the stages of grief, like the moments of irrationality, moments of introspection, moments of anger, moments of self-sabotage, like all it's all in there. There's only really one piece of advice that anyone can ever do and it's boring and I'm sorry there's no like key to you know it's not going buy a pair of shoes mm. which does help me sometimes <laughs> but <laughs> but I feel like it's just an awareness that time is the most amazing I don't know if it's always a healer I don't mm. know if I buy that but it's amazing because it always continues there's nothing you can do to stop it so every feeling you ever have is temporary and I feel like that gives me reassurance, whatever's happening when I'm sitting in those feelings. And I do think you have to sit in them. I always have in the back of my mind this feeling, no feeling, positive or negative, is going to remain permanent. You might be like having the best time of your life listening to this podcast. And I hate to tell you that might not last either. <laughs> Some, somebody, so I do have a back catalogue, so it's like, no, I'm Yeah, kidding. somebody's I'm going, something's going to shit on you, guaranteed. It's just more an awareness of the fact that everything is impermanent, which is quite a sort of Buddhist perspective. Yeah. I've never had a breakup with children. And I wanted to ask you, although it's probably an impossible thing to answer, but how, how does it differ with two children? I don't think it is impossible because it feels so dramatically different. 
because you can't do the initial bit where you're like, I need space, I can't see you anymore. Like yeah. you're forced to do that. And you're forced at times, well, I was because I put myself under that pressure. We both did. We pretended at first, like pretended to get along, pretended that it wasn't, we weren't both absolutely devastated. And it gets confusing. It still gets confusing. It's like a never-ending breakup. It's like I feel bad for, you know, anybody who dates me because he's so important. He's so wrapped up in my children that he's almost more important than anybody else that might come along. Like my relationship, not necessarily that I would like cuddle up in bed with him. Of course I wouldn't. But I think that relationship with him is more important to me now at this stage in my separation I feel I put him before I do most people because he's the father of my kids and I really like feel very kind of emphatic about stabilizing my children and I I can already tell that they've had a better experience of it than I did as a kid because I was a child of divorced parents and my relationship with their dad is so much better than I grew up with Mm. It's still not at that place where I would openly say who I'm seeing or, you know, like it's just a bit uncomfortable. It's all a bit new and it's a first time for both of us. And it's, I don't know, it's a bit bit murky, I think. And it's two years later, like usually two years on, you're just done. You're just like, well, we live, we don't even want to be friends anymore because we just don't see each other that much. We haven't got time, blah, blah, blah. No hard feelings, but, you know. But with this, it's like, no, it's still a really significant relationship. How old are your daughters? Seven and two. That's also a very sort of intense period of parenting. Mm. You had this wonderful metaphor. I hope I don't embarrass you by reading it out loud. You can't embarrass me. In a recent interview, you were asked about the reasons for your breakup and you and you spoke about expandable foam. Do you yeah. remember this? Yeah. Will you tell us what you mean by expandable foam? It was so good. <laughs> <laughs> I think that when you're in a relationship, there is there are holes, like there are bits that you can't fill. And then as, as a healthy relationship grows, those holes, your partner hopefully sees them and then sort of you sque- they squeeze themselves in them like expandable foam. It just fills the gaps that you leave. And so in order to sort of progress, like there is an inevitability of change. Everyone changes over years and years. So if you are with someone for like 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, it'd be weird if you didn't change as a person. So the idea is that in my mind that they need to be like expandable foam. They need to observe your changes and you observe theirs and you both kind of fill in the gaps in the sort of, I guess, like a more fluid Mm. way than just being like rigid, like, I don't like the new you. I don't like this change. And I think for me, when I speak about that, the most significant change was going from being like a couple of two people to three people, then four people being our children. And so there was a rigidity, I think, that was difficult to navigate for us because I changed and I changed what I was capable of giving. And I think that I'm going to make a sweeping statement, but I think quite a lot of heterosexual men want mothering 
And when a woman's mothering actual children, they don't really want to. I don't just, I just feel that capacity. I just don't, Mm. there's being there for someone. And then there's like being expected to kind of mother and almost like give them what they lack. And I just feel very unavailable for that. I think so many people (laughs) will relate to that. I've heard very good friends of mine saying the same thing. Hey guys, it's Cheyenne Davis. You may know me from MTV's Teen Mom OG or Think Loud Crew podcast. I'm here with my dad, Papa Floyd, to tell you about our new podcast, Unfiltered Kitchen. The kitchen is the hub of the household for many of us. The one-stop shop for conversations both big and small. Cheyenne and I have been having open conversations about all aspects of life in our kitchen since well before she was able to see over the counter. And now we're inviting you into our own kitchen as a part of the family. Unfiltered Kitchen is a two-way street. I share my advice on cocktails, cooking, parenting, and the lessons I've learned. And I inform my dad what it's like to raise kids today, how generational barriers affect us, and the joys of being a daughter. Well, your daughter. Get ready for a whole lot of unfiltered advice. You can take it or leave it, but you're never going to leave this table feeling hungry for more. Listen to Unfiltered Kitchen wherever you get your podcasts. These days you can't go anywhere on the internet without running into the most horrible takes. You know, your good old-fashioned homophobes or your self-proclaimed alpha males who are writing two-page articles titled How to Score the Perfect Female in 10 Days. If you are just as sick of these outdated takes as we are, you will love our podcast, Outspoken, hosted by me, Sam Collins, and my incredible partner, Shannon. We are an LGBT couple who have seen it all, been called it all, and are ready to take on the never-ending world of outrageous online opinions. Each week, we bring you the most ridiculous videos, hot takes, and hellbent news we come across on the internet. So come laugh with us as we dismantle outdated ideologies and tear apart the most confident idiots on the internet on our podcast, Outspoken. You can follow and listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you are listening right now. Before we get onto your failures, I just want to touch on something that you mentioned about how your parents were divorced when you were quite young. What is your abiding childhood feeling about your parents splitting up? Well, I'm really glad that my parents split up because my dad was really difficult. And so I think that I would have been a lot more of a mess psychologically if they'd have stayed together. So I'm so grateful for it. And I'm grateful it was when I was young as well. Do you have a relationship with your dad now? No. I said it was my last question before your failures. I lied because okay. I remembered I wanted to ask you about your book. It's called mm. MILF. Yeah. It sounds brilliant. You were telling me about it before we started recording. What is the premise of it? I've changed the anagram to motherhood, identity, love and fuckery. I don't know if you can swear on <laughs> you, I actively encourage swearing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the title is kind of about the fact that it's a bit of a runner-up prize calling a mum a milf because you're like, oh, at least we still fancy you. Thanks. Mm. But it's sort of about social expectation of women and female identity. I guess from the perspective of someone in their 40s, whether they've got children or not, it's kind of across the board, but it's really about like the idea of feminism's 
abandoned us halfway through its work in the West particularly and left us kind of with sort of free jobs and all this responsibility to like be more than and sort of be such expandable foam that (laughs) that we're just like filling every space and it's about the frustration and I feel like we need to have more boundaries about it I just feel like so pressed by culture and expectation and it's just an example what the book's about here's an example there's one where I write about a boyfriend asking me to like understand his feelings and be there for him in and how I was cold about it or whatever and I'm like sitting just thinking I've already this morning dressed three bodies brushed three sets of teeth fed three breakfasts wiped three bums and done a workout Mm. and I'm and I'm sitting here going sorry I I wasn't (laughs) you know it's just a lot yeah so it's just, uh, yes, kind of exploring those themes. I'm fascinated to come on later to talk about how you came of age as a singer and a famous person in the noughties, which was a particularly toxic era, I think, for women. And I'm someone who also remembers the 90s, which is pretty toxic as well. Yeah. But maybe we'll come on to that later as part of one of your failures, because your first failure is being thrown out of ballet school age 10. Why were you thrown out? Because this is the really heartbreaking bit. I was thrown out because I showed signs of becoming curvy and that wasn't like the correct body for a ballet dancer. And I was really committed. I was at like a proper ballet school and I went four times a week after school. And then they they told me that. They didn't they just said, We just don't feel like your body type will be suited, which was a big moment, which has probably influenced me. I think I've got like a slightly I always talk about body positivity like I'm envious of it I'm me too I'm really body negative (laughs) (laughs) I know and then I feel negative about being body negative because I feel like I should be being body positive yeah you want to leave by example you're desperate for it but you can't although I'm quite good at it with my children I think so as long as I can make two women be body positive (laughs) then I've succeeded setting realistic goals (laughs) (laughs) but I think um yeah it was a bit of a blow and then it made me sort of obsessed with it forever (laughs) basically that was it what form did that obsession take I didn't ever develop an eating disorder which I'm grateful for but I I did go on to dance school and I have body dysmorphia. Like I don't act on it in sort of like addictive ways, but like it does, sometimes I look at photos and I just think I was huge in that photo, but then I'll see the photo and be like, I wasn't. Mm. Like in my mind, it's like I was really sad at that point because I felt I was overeating or whatever. And then I'll see a picture of it or a video and be like, I've never been like, and I tell people as well, I've I've said in interviews even, and I won't say it today, I've said like my weight's always fluctuated. And actually it really hasn't. Like, mm. I mean, within half a stone, but like the only time it ever did was postpartum. And I was just really headstrong about it and I just got on with it. I just got rid of it. I was, I don't think I've ever, it's been as bad as it is in my mind, like the torment of it. 
And I really, like you say, wish that I wasn't. Because I see other people owning who they are and owning their bodies. And I just feel like they're amazing mm. and inspiring and all of that. I just can't get there. How much of that self-critical voice is actually you, do you think? And how much of it is conditioning, ballet school, the 90s being told that a bowl of special K a day was a good diet yeah. to shift those extra pounds. Like it, I know it's it's probably quite difficult to sort of separate mm. all of those strands. Well, I call it the inner bully because it's sort of a permanent thing. And if you speak to anybody who's had sort of a successful career, most of them have quite a loud inner bu- bully because it does also motivate you. Mm. And I think that actually when you talk about body relationship with your body, it's not usually about your actual body in a literal sense. It's to do with saying you can try harder. you got to be better. And I think like growing up, my mum was always really encouraging of me as I was and never put any pressure on me. I had some learning difficulties as a, as a kid and then suddenly just excelled overnight and it was really strange I was in the Hackney Gazette for doing really well in this underachieving school but I was kind of like very bottom end until I was about 13 slow reader slow at all these things and my mum was just always like you'll come to it in your own time and my dad was always like even when I did well he'd be like why isn't it an A star if I said I got an A but that's how we graded it back then in the olden days. Yeah. That's what my daughter calls me. In the olden days when you were little. <laughs> like, I'm not that old. But then it just becomes this thing of like me always feeling like that child that was behind, always feeling like I needed to prove something. Even like once I'd got to dance school, um, one of the teachers called me to her office and was like did you write this essay because it's extraordinary and I was like yeah but she goes but why do you present yourself as like a bit stupid and I was like do I she's like I don't I don't I can't believe you wrote it and I I was like I just think that I'm not pretentious Mm. doesn't mean that I'm stupid anyway all that stuff it kind of like adds up doesn't it and over years and years it mounts and you're like I have to prove this thing and you know I'm also like I don't know about you but I find myself so inarticulate when I speak but much better writing I'm exactly the same but can I just reassure you that you are phenomenally articulate (laughs) right now right here (laughs) but but I do I really relate to that that the voice in your head being like you haven't found the right word as you're Mm. speaking yeah 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 (laughs) and it's much calmer for me to be writing something Mm, same and I can go back on it and sometimes makes people go oh you're so humble you're so sweet and I'm like humble would be nice but like actually quite abusive like internally Mm. is probably not and I think that I am quite abusive I'm really to myself yeah no I get it (laughs) make that clarification (laughs) I really relate and I'm really sorry that you're dealing with that but I'm also so proud of you for having that level of self-awareness about it because the first step is observation of it rather Mm. than feeling it is swallowing you up I wonder how much of this drive this kind of internal motor that you have to prove yourself comes from being the child of a quote-unquote single mum which was a label that had a particular resonance in in the time that we were growing up Mm. did you feel that you had to compensate I did especially because my mum came from like extreme poverty on a scale that 
doesn't even really exist anymore because of changes in sort of, you know, the way the state is run and stuff. Like they came from like a hand to mouth type of family. Like if there was no money, there was no food and stealing like food from other farmers stuff and you know all of that because they were from a rural area knowing that she came out of that and sort of telling me all the time like oh I we had education because we wanted to get out of that so we studied because we wanted an escape route and so coming from that home life of like education being this important thing sort of led me to getting kind of all A's at my exams and then going on to do a degree and then a master's and all of that was definitely motivated by I guess honouring what she had done and then knowing you know seeing the difference in my childhood like I remember the visual change in where I lived over the years changing as she progressed in her career I just remember like what our house looked like when I was really young versus what it looks like now and how that was like a visual representation of her work and effort and I just thought I can't drop the ball and I still won't drop the ball today because I just want her to know that like it wasn't all in vain and I do think it's probably the main motivator I think that and also when I was 26 I have a sister who's my dad's child with another woman and well, I have two, but one of them, I became her legal guardian when I was 26. And at that point, I was quite kind of creative and a bit art school and a bit more whimsical. And then when I became her legal guardian and had this social worker and I had to prove that I could look after her and I'd be responsible, I suddenly did this like big U-turn on my career and started pursuing like more commercial angle of of my creativity so I think that's how I ended up in films and how I ended up becoming like a commercial more commercial musician I think before that was way more experimental but I just felt responsible did she come and live with you Mm. how old was she she was just about to be 16 no maybe 15 into yeah till she was 18 that's a huge responsibility I think it's 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 not because if you think of it, I was 26 and some people have babies, but it's just that she was a teenager. So I didn't grow with her. Like having had children now, I can understand why it was difficult, because when you have a baby, you sort of grow with it, you learn with it. But I kind of just had this person that was half child, half adult Mm. and also had quite a sort of tumultuous life before that like coming to live with me I speak a bit about it in the book but I frame it in the in the idea that it was the first time I became a mother really yeah how is she doing now she's amazing good I'm so proud all credit to I you. get all tearful because I think she's just my hero <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now.
when you started becoming famous and having your picture in papers, mm. was that also quite destructive for your sense of self and your body image? Yeah, people think that's the reality, but those lenses are sort of like so, because they take a photo from so far away and zoom in, they're just so enlarging. I have people all the time meet me and they're like, oh my God, you're tiny in real life. And it's so irritating because it gives people this really weird sense. Like I remember once somebody came up to me in the noughties from the clothes show and said, I love what you do for women with curves. And I was like, I'm a size eight. <laughs> Please don't project that narrative. Like, I am not a woman with cur- I mean, like, I'm curvy on my frame, but, like, I'm a size eight. Don't go around telling people I'm a curvy woman. It's not fair on people. I want to talk about your second failure, and I'm so glad that you chose it, because I think it leads on from what we've been discussing about your body and what our bodies can and can't do and what we expect them to do and what society tells us they should do as Mm. women. And your second failure is your failure to conceive your kids naturally. So you had IVF and also your failure to have a natural birth. Yeah. And the reason I'm so pleased that you're talking about this is because I also went through several rounds of fertility treatment, had recurrent miscarriages and don't have children. Mm. And I'm at peace with that now. It's been a long journey, but I'm at peace with it. And that's why I'm really grateful to have this conversation with you, that you still feel this failure, even though you have your daughters. So please tell me about your journey. First of all, sorry. Thank (laughs) you. Because it's so harrowing doing it. And then like no and and it's always in the background no one really knows it's happening yeah and it's a quite a lonely thing I think to do even if you've got a partner you're still alone in it because it's all on you isn't it very very isolating Mm. so what happened with me was I always thought or felt that quite fertile and I had had a situation when I was very young where I sort of looked at a penis and became pregnant. So I just <laughs> thought I was like on high alert my whole life about not conceiving after that. And then we had some issues. We knew quite quick, or I knew quite quickly there was problems because I'm a bit witchy anyway and I just thought there was something. And then found out that what actually happened was the beginning of our fertility treatment, it was because it was on his side that there was fertility problems but thanks to modern science and the patriarchy it still falls on the woman (laughs) (laughs) no funding research has been done to allow the man who's got fertility problems to take any sort of physical responsibility for that (laughs) it's the same process as if it was my issue it began like that and then I then had an ectopic pregnancy with the first um God, I'm sorry. one. And then so then you like then you, my fertility starts going because I've had one tube damaged. So mm. then it's like every other month. And then anyway, so the second time did work. So I was lucky because I actually had two viable pregnancies even though one was ectopic quite quickly. And then the birth was really difficult. It was like actually unbearable. And the the kind of long version is in my book. But it started off with PROMS, which is called premature rupture of membranes, where you're sort of in labour. And that was only six months pregnant, I think. 
seen That's my book, so I've written it down. Yeah, and so I was leaking and they were like, you're going to have to induce, we're going to have a premature baby. And I just kind of like was really defiant that I didn't want to do that. And I basically had bed rest and I was just drinking four litres of water a day and I kept her in for a month just laying down to kind of replenish the lost waters and then eventually the birth itself was went terribly wrong and lots of things like we all have this idea that we're gonna have this natural birth and it's all gonna be perfect and I'm mother nature and like even I've written about this in my book they tell you that you put the baby on you and it finds its way to the breast absolute nonsense I don't know who came up with that but it's rubbish it doesn't they just lay there looking at you crying Mm -hmm. and then (laughs) it all just went a bit wrong and after 21 hours of labor and like a lot of kind of stuff and no sleep for a week I had seven hours sleep in seven days I had an emergency cesarean which also caused me later on fertility problems as well and then a bit of postpartum psychosis because of lack of sleep so I like was hallucinating it was all just awful that's so traumatic I was probably depressed for a couple of years without realizing because the weird thing about depression is that I didn't realize was that you don't or any mental illness is when it's legitimate mental illness you're very unaware of the fact you've got it Mm. and it's only when it passes that I realized that I had been mentally unwell and so I think that took its toll on my relationship which this album's about and and then like later you know I wanted a second child and then I had three failed um transfers like one more egg collection three failed transfers and then the fourth one worked and then I was just so kind of headstrong about it in a way how like a woman doing IVF becomes almost like in this trance-like state of like that's what I want and Mm. a lot of stuff falls by the wayside like your emotional life your relationship because you're just so like focused on this thing in quite an obsessive way you don't even like consider what might be lost or a woman's identity becoming a mother or anything. You're just about having these babies anyway. Eventually, I've been very fortunate and grateful that I've I had the second one. But even then, it's only recently because that child's now too, and she. I didn't realise that I'd been quite depressed even after that, and actually wonder. I always think like would my relationship have broken down if I'd have medicated? Like, this stuff doesn't get talked about enough. I feel like maybe it was all because of it. You said that you're a bit witchy. I imagine you believe in some sort of universal power. Do you think it had to be this way in that respect? Like, how do you feel now being a mother, given everything that you went through and what you had to deal with and the pain you had to suffer along the way and what was lost, as well as the enormous fortune that you have these two beautiful daughters. But how does that feel? I just wonder whether it's a mindset. Like I I see people who have careers and lives where they want stuff and it sort of just happens. My manager, who's been my manager since the beginning of my career, called and he was like, yeah, but it wouldn't be you if it was easy, would it? And then he said that, and I was like, oh, my God, you're right, actually. Like, it's always, whatever, whatever's happened, it's been difficult. And I think that goes for a lot of people. But sometimes from the outside, you look at 
the world and you think, oh, like I know people who said, oh, we're going to start trying for a baby and three weeks later they're pregnant. Or people who sit in interviews in the music business and say, yeah, we just wrote this song in 10 minutes and it's a global smash. Yeah. You're just like, ah, <laughs> how's that <laughs> happened to you? <laughs> but you know what, though? The beauty for you, for Paloma Faith and for the rest of us is in those difficulties because what you're doing every single time you're surmounting a challenge Mm. is you're becoming wiser and stronger. Yeah, and also like those cases are usually in reality a bit of a minority like I'm sure you know from your podcast that most successful people have had way more failures than they've had successes and only people only ever focus on their successes they never focus on the million times that they failed before that. Can we just clip that? that Have that as the social media clip, the official blurb. (laughs) Precisely that. But I just want to return to the fact that you've chosen this as one of your failures. I I can relate to it, but I think some people will be listening thinking, but it's not your failure if you didn't manage to conceive. No, you're right. It's to do with social pressure, isn't it? It's to do with how we're raising our girls, how we're raising women from childhood as like this is one of your purposes in life is you were born to do this and you were born to further the human race and no pressure but now because of feminism and this is one of my things is like that it's abandoned us is like but you also need to like have your independence you need to have your career and you know we've all arrived at this point in history where we're like well, we're trying to get my career going and then it means that we're having children later and then we're not really being able to kind of foresee these issues early enough to be able to... Time runs away from us, doesn't it? It's like Mm. now I'm 42 and I think, oh, I'd love another child, but I've kind of thought... I probably won't be able to now. Not with all, and my mum's always like, "Your body wouldn't cope with it." (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think, yeah, it's exactly that. It's to do with like this idea that we are groomed to think that's our job, and that that's our kind of that's the most fulfilling thing you can do as a woman. That's not true. Mm. Even when you've got kids, you're made to feel a bit guilty if you don't think that your kids are the most fulfilling thing in your life I do get a lot of fulfillment from other parts of life it doesn't mean that I don't love my children or I'm neglecting them I remember saying something to my mum even about sacrifice when it comes to parenthood like all the sacrifices you make for yourself well I wouldn't look at it as a sacrifice having a child is not a sacrifice and it's like you're not even allowed to think that you might go well sometimes I do quite miss spontaneity sorry to admit Mm. but I do sort of miss being able to go right I'm getting on a plane tomorrow and I'm going to go and just be at this thing that might help my career or whatever motivates you or just see this natural phenomena or whatever it is go see a volcano yeah exactly (laughs) and we're allowed to be many different things Mm. that are sometimes complementary and sometimes contradictory and the patriarchy does all genders a disservice it traps us all and you alluded to this but that idea that the medical establishment has has not funded a lot of research into mm. how to make things easier for women in in many respects and certainly my experience going through IVF and I know it's changed a lot now but I was made to feel like a failure 
because of the language used by medical professionals. Like that Geriatric idea. Geriatric <clears throat> mother. Yes. I get that. Or like this transfer's failed. Exactly. You fail to produce enough eggs. Yeah. Your cervix is incompetent. Yeah. It's not. An, a, a more, I've, I heard one that was something like it's not a. Viable. Yeah, no, but something about the environment of my of my Inho- uterus. Inhospitable. Yeah, an inhospitable environment. I was very welcoming, I felt. <laughs> I'm sure you have a lovely, warm, generous womb. <laughs> and I would love to book a room there. <laughs> High thread count sheets. <laughs> Can you just tell us what your daughters are like as characters? Yin and Yang. So the older one is super bright on a sort of emotional comedic level because she's only seven people don't understand that she's just got really deadpan (laughs) humour and quite often thinks she's just like a bit of a rude child but she's not because she sort of winks at me afterwards she's just so hilarious and it's like a bit of an old soul Mm. and she's like this dark person so there's a great anecdote that I've got from recently we went on holiday and the um the way she's very like feminist the the waiter like pulled out a chair and went this is for you princess and she went I am not a princess I'm the queen of darkness (gasps) I'm obsessed with her (laughs) so she's kind of like a bit of a hero and then the other one is like where this one who's like kind of intelligent, stimulating, lateral thinking and a bit cynical, the flip, sometimes she's lacking a bit on the kind of like cuddles and the cuteness. And so the little one's got all of that in bucket loads. Mm-hmm. And everywhere we go, people are just like, oh my God, I've never met a more cute child. Like she's just like this sort of, she's like a Japanese cartoon character. She's just so cute, big eyes, smiles at everyone and makes everyone feel special. And I know what the future looks like. The future looks like the older one is going to look after me in old age and like despise me and say I was irritating and annoying but be there every day like wiping my bum when I'm incontinent and then the the young one's going to be somewhere sorry mother I'm just in Thailand they need me here everyone loves me here just like giving her love and I'll be like oh she called to the older one be like she gets all the credit I'm so uplifted because she rang me once in six months and the older one will be like, I hate you, mother. I'm here every day. <laughs> oh, that's genius. That's it. That's the future. Before we get on to your third and final failure, I hope you don't mind my asking you about this, but I read that you suffered a miscarriage mm. on set once. Yeah. And again, I think a lot of women will relate to this. You went back to work. Well, I didn't go back. I was just in it and it started at work and it was a fight scene on Pennyworth. And I just thought to myself, it's gone. So I might as well carry on with what I'm doing. I had to go to the toilet nine times. And on film sets, they escort you to the toilet because they don't want to lose you and like delay filming or whatever. So it was quite embarrassing. I was like, oh, sorry, something bad last night. So I knew that if I told them I was miscarrying, they'd send me home. I didn't want to because I just thought I'd just be going home without work and without a, a viable pregnancy. And I just thought, I just, I'm just going to stay. And I just sort of stuffed loads of tissues in my underwear. And I said, I've come on my period. Could you send for something or whatever? And they did. 
I was like, it's quite heavy. And I just carried on filming. And actually, I don't regret it. I think it's kind of very indicative of who I am as a person. And some people might find it, I don't know, disturbing or a bit weird or whatever. But I just think that's kind of the way I am. And I didn't really cry about it. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. But it is, it's me. It's, it's what I'm like. Do you think you disassociate? Yes. I think quite a lot of people who've had varying degrees of trauma from childhood learn disassociation. And I think that I did. And it's like, I, I listened to Alain de Botton quite a lot. And I listened to him say the other day, which was good, like those kind of survival mechanisms you develop as a child were really good for you as a child because they help you cope. But taking them into adulthood can sometimes not be great for you because they don't really work long term. But well done to the child you exactly. for figuring it out kind of thing. Acknowledge the child and what they did to protect you. Yeah, I know what you mean, though, because I have had miscarriages and I think I disassociated and I've done that thing of like I was at brunch with a friend and I carried on having the brunch like and I think when you were talking earlier about being in depression and not acknowledging it as Mm. that then but only in retrospect you were in retrospect yeah I can see that I numbed myself and that was the way that I got through it and I more recently had an experience of that sort of um, that tapping therapy, e- yeah. EDMR, e- yeah. EMDR. EMDR. So good, isn't it? Well, it was interesting because they they are well they asked me like think of a a difficult image like a sort of flashback image, a traumatic image, and I could think of the image, but I had no feelings attached to it. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's how deep my disassociation went. You knew that it was difficult, but you didn't feel like exactly, it was. Yeah. Exactly. And then I got into the people-pleasing thing of like, I now need to pretend yeah. that I'm <laughs> finding it uncomfortable and I'm being cured. Yeah. Well done, yeah, thank you well so done, much. It works. <laughs> <laughs> but have you found it helpful? I think therapies are good because I think that they just give you that one hour a week to kind of really focus on something. I don't think that anyone is particularly better than another and everyone's different. Do you think you disassociate when you perform slightly? As in, do you have a persona when you perform? It's the only time, weirdly, when I'm performing, the only time in my life that I'm fully committed to the moment I'm in and I'm not thinking about what ifs, anything ahead or anything behind, I'm only in that moment. And therefore, it's the complete absence of anxiety for me. And I have anxiety about everything all day, every day. But the only time I don't is on stage. The only time, which is why I think that that in itself, you know, when people say, your kids need to be the source of everything, they riddle me with anxiety. Mm. Like going on stage is amazing. I don't even worry about them because I think I have to go onto this stage and finish this performance. And I've done it in so many situations, the same as continuing the fight scene while having a miscarriage. It's like, for me, work is a refuge. It's like, I just really want to deliver a performance and it's beyond me or any kind of like real life stuff. Mm. And so, yeah, it's a bit disassociated, but not necessarily because I'm very present in it. Well, talking about your love of performing brings us neatly onto your third failure, which is your failure to have a good work-life balance. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all feel that. Do Do we? I think so. I know people who don't work that much. (laughs) 
Do they feel that they've got the balance correct though? Because probably even there, they're worrying that they're doing not working too much enough. One. Yes. Do you think you're a workaholic? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and it's really bad, and and I think it's got it gets to dangerous levels. But I think both my parents, so like, I know I don't have a great relationship with my dad, but I do have a work ethic from both my parents. Both of them, when I was growing up, were just obsessed with work. And then I sort of just like copied it. And now I don't really, really fully know, because I've never witnessed it in my life, how to do anything else other than be obsessed by work. It's so interesting going back to what we were talking about right at the beginning about that idea of honouring what your mother went through Mm -hmm. and her striving and working to make the house nicer, that maybe you still are so driven by that. A hundred percent, yeah. But also, it's not just workaholism and it's, I get so much out of it. Like, I'm lucky as well that I have a job I love so much. Mm. But I think, like, that thing of just being like, so fulfilled by something and kind of governed by a fear that that thing might be taken away. Yes. Is what motivates me. Every time I put a record out, I think this is the last one or I notice everything like the record company aren't calling me as much as they used to or I wasn't invited to this event. Why wasn't I invited? Like, it's just so ridiculous. I don't look at other people, but I just worry about my own failures. (laughs) Paloma Faith, I have loved talking to you so much. I could do it for hours. Thank you so much for coming on How to Fail. Just a quick reminder that we continue the conversation over at Failing with Friends. It's a wonderful community of subscribers where we chat through your failures and questions. I get annoyed by men asking me to marry them. I think it's irritating. That is the best soundbite ever. (laughs) And I need that I on a T-shirt. See, like, that needs just, to be your merch. It's actually offensive. It is. It's completely <laughs> offensive. It's like, what, you want to own me? You want to own me? And you won't feel that you have to invest in it and, like, show up every night because you want to. No, because I have to sign this piece of paper invented by men for the benefit of men. I'm not, I'm not into it. Get Failing with Friends episodes every week and all episodes of How to Fail ad-free. Just visit the How to Fail show page on Apple Podcasts and click Start Free at the top of the page to begin your free trial. Or you can visit failingwithfriends.com if you're not an Apple user. 